Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I am your host, Dwayne Mancini. In this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Michael Brannigan Harris, who is the CEO of Device Access UK. If you're looking to take your product to market in the UK, Mike is your guy. He is incredibly knowledgeable. And in this episode of the podcast, he explains exactly how to do that, how the reimbursement works in the UK, how the healthcare system works. Um, He talks about some trends he sees, the needs of the UK market. He explains why or, or how you could use access in the UK to get access in other places around the world, other geographies. Um, It was a really informative um, uh, discussion I had with Mike, and I encourage you to listen to the the whole podcast. Um, Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Michael Brannigan Harris. Okay, Mike, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, great to meet you, Dwayne. Thank you so much for inviting me along. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned, you know, in in your bio, you're the CEO of Device Access UK. So maybe just give me a brief uh, background on what Device Access does and um, what your role is at the company. Yeah, sure. Well, we're a market access consultancy um, set up. 10 years ago now, we've just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. And we were set up, um, my background, we can go into more detail later, but is, uh, you know, over 31 years in, in medical devices now. And, um, and I worked out being involved in introducing some great technologies into our healthcare system, how to uh, try and get technologies to patients faster. And, and so our whole, um, our whole, mindset what our goals are is is to find great technologies and bring them into the healthcare system here the national health service and get them to patients faster great and um so you know this is a a fascinating topic it's this is something we talk about often in the in the u.s as well and it's 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 a very complicated you know um subject in the u.s um let's talk a little bit about the uk i mean I largely know nothing about it. So um, maybe just just start with some of the basics and let's dive into some of the details. Yeah, sure. So I, I think, um, you know, where, where do you start? I mean, I think we, we, we can start with just defining what market access is, you know. Yeah. And I know, uh, you, you know, we've got lots to talk about this. And, and um, you know, when you, when you bring new products to market, there, there's a theory that was invented in the 1960s called marketing. And, and I think it, marketing works generally quite well. Um, it's quite an old theory and it involves four Ps, which is, um, you know, product, price, place, promotion. And, and I think it works with uh, fast moving consumer goods. But when you are introducing, you know, complex things that affect patients, providers, payers, and the businesses that supply them, um, I, I've worked out over many years of doing of working with hundreds of companies, uh, particularly from North America, which is where most of the great technologies come from. Um, I've worked out a way of of, um, of putting a proposition 
position together around a medical device that involves demonstration of benefits to patients, which is the goal. You know, we're all trying to improve patients' lives. Um, benefits to the provider of care, and there are hospitals in both our healthcare systems. Whatever they do has to benefit, you know, in some way or form. Now we're going into, in our country, into the biggest waiting list of, of its history. Um, you know, um, millions of patients waiting for surgery. So hospitals want to, you know, uh, they want to treat these patients and get the waiting list down. And they also want to generate income and profit like any business. So, so the mindset of the provider is generally in our healthcare system is hitting the waiting list and getting them down, dealing with the demand in, in a way that is uh, efficient and generating income. Then you have the payer of care. And the payers of care, I mean, you have a big insured market, we have a publicly funded healthcare system, you've got Medicare. But I think that, you know, what do they want to do? Well, they want to treat the patients with the right treatment at the right time. They want good value, good outcomes, and they want to be treated right and out of the system as quickly as possible. And um, so, so the, the incentives and drivers are very, very different between payers and providers. And, and then the last um, you know, the last P of market access, so is patient, provider, payer, is product. And products are made by manufacturers and they need to benefit from selling them. And it's, it's about optimizing that sales price, but maximizing the access of the technology to the patients that really need, that really need the technology. And those four pillars are the, the overall story behind device access and how we work with companies and how we we embed those principles into helping companies engage better with our healthcare system. Um, part of that is about getting them recommended through a program run by a organization called NICE, N-I-C-E. And NICE is best described as the JD Power to our healthcare system. So you have JD Power, JD Power tells you which car to buy, which washing machine to buy, you name it, it goes through JD Power and consumers yeah. look at this thing and they work out, well, which is the best buy? And that's what they do for our healthcare system. They don't force you to buy it, they don't pay for it, but they give you advice on what, what is safe, effective, good for the patient, provider, payer, you know, and, and, and it's NICE's role and has been incredibly, uh, you know, busy with the last four months or so is giving direction to the NHS as to how to treat COVID-19 patients. So, so NICE are um, at the center of this and, and they are powerful enough to give guidance to our healthcare system in terms of, of how to treat these patients. And, and does, does NICE stand for anything or, and, and is it a government, is it a, is a government, is it a government organization? It's, it's a government sort of agency and yeah. NICE stands for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, NICE have been around now for over 20 years, um, well, probably 21 years now. So they've been around for quite a number of years and they are regarded as the, in the world as one of the leading health technology assessment um, bodies um, and, and for many of our clients and many of our North American clients what they want to do is they want to get NICE approval because it helps give coverage decisions even as far as the USA so we have clients who got NICE approval for, for their technology which led to coverage with Blue Cross Blue Shield Anthem in certain parts of the USA and that was that was hugely powerful for them because they then got acquired by uh, by by Stryker for quite a large sum of money. So so it, it is a, a great commercial strategy to go along this route. And many companies we work with from North America do 
want to go through NICE to help to get the products into our healthcare system, to show global coverage outside the US, and also to improve their, 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 their whole business's value by, by getting this, this great approval from NICE. Sure. And is, is, is NICE only for um, the UK? It is. I mean, they're, they're really yeah. focused in NHS England. So we okay. have Scotland, uh, England, Ireland and, 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 and Wales. And, sure. and they are, you know, Wales and Scotland have their own HTA health technology assessment bodies. Um, but, but, but NICE, um, you know, they, they, they give the guidance to NHS England, which is by far the biggest region of, of the country, obviously. So, so they do. They do, but but as mentioned earlier, the coverage decisions that are made by NICE do have global effects in a lot of the Commonwealth countries and in parts of Europe as well. Sure, yeah, that's really fascinating. So, but they, do they they have um, they don't have anything to do with uh, regulatory approval in in the UK? No, and I think okay. that's where there's can be some confusions because you know yep. people compare NICE to the FDA, and we have our own regulatory body and that's uh, that's a, that's the mhra which is another body and, and the mhra can can tell uh, the, the 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 nhs to stop using something because it's unsafe i mean nice mm-hmm. can give guidance to healthcare system um the nhs healthcare system to say that something's not safe enough to use regularly and needs to track long long-term outcomes but they rarely give negative uh, guidance unless something's really unsafe Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's really more of the JD power side of things versus the, the FDA, which can be, you know, pretty, pretty tough to deal with. Right. Okay. Really interesting. So let's, while we're there, let's, let's talk a little bit, um, about that strategy, um, for, for companies to, uh, help with coverage in the U S cause that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and, and to get on to, like you said, uh, Blue Cross, Blue Shield or Anthem or, 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 or whatever it, it, it might be. Um, so is, is, is the strategy there to, you know, try to get approval on the U.S. and, you know, U.K. market and then use NICE as, as part of your reimbursement strategy? Is that, is that kind of how yeah, it works out? So how the companies work with us, I mean, you know, um, when, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the, we've worked, let's say, with thousands of medical device companies over sure. the last years, but, but, um, but there is always a, uh, you know, a desire to, to do the domestic market first. And, um, you know, for many companies, they want to get FDA approval, which is great. Um, FDA requires different sorts of evidence than than some other countries. And we've got to we've got to sort of wind it back a bit and, and understand why these bodies called HTA bodies exist in the first place. And I think it's it's because um, each healthcare system doesn't matter where you are in which country, but these HTA bodies are there as a sort of filtration system to stop products from getting to market that are unsafe, to stop products from getting to market that are um, you know, aren't, uh, don't do what they say they do. Uh, but, but probably more than anything else is making sure that products get into healthcare systems or are accepted in healthcare systems that show value. And, and that can be clinical outcomes. It can be cost effectiveness. I mean, this is why these things are in place that there's no bottomless pit of cash in any country maybe some, uh, to buy products that's that delightful salespeople and inventors in 
percent. But um, so so you've got to you've got to bring it back to that. And I think that um, globally, um, the, the countries that that the the typically North American companies want to go after is the UK and Germany, and both run very different systems besides going for their own market. Okay. So I think that, um, you know, both countries offer, you know, Germany, we talk about Germany and the UK offer, you know, different healthcare systems. German healthcare system and population is bigger than the UK. They have a very eloquent system. It, it's very good. I mean, our company device access is actually owned by a uh, US, uh, sorry, by a German um, company called Aegis, and, and they've been around for 40 years. Um, helping government uh, in, in Germany make decisions in health, transport, and education. It's another story. Um, but, 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 you know, when, when a lot of the companies we work for want to sell, and many of them are startups, we love working with startup companies. We see such great innovation every day. It's an exciting world to be in, MedTech, and we love it. Um, but, but a lot of these companies, they want to uh, you know, get into these markets, show some market access success, and then sell to the big boys. And that's just generally what happens. And I follow and I track these, these companies. And, and there's great value. There's so much more value you can get for your business if you're looking to be acquired, if you have a global market access um, presence, i.e. not just the US market. Yep. So I think that, um, you know, both UK and Germany have different uh, challenges, definitely, but they are really good markets to go after. And in some cases, and in many cases, actually, US companies want to do their clinical research in Europe because they don't have the evidence to satisfy FDA. So they'll go more seriously into UK and Germany to get a bit beyond just a research situation and get some traction, sales and revenue going in these markets as well. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great a great venture for these companies to go on so so going back to your original question about you know do you come after getting nice approval and german approvals to get fda yes they're very supportive um i'm, I'm sure they are but but you know it, it's a bigger picture here about the value of these companies by getting into these other markets and, and sure. what it means for them from a value perspective longer term okay so so germany and the uk are the two are they the two largest I, I, I don't know, so I'm, I'm asking, but are they the yeah. two largest uh, healthcare systems in the EU or just by population or? I, I would probably bring France into that. And I okay. France because we're, we're, we're part of, as I say, a larger group and we do have a French, um, a, a French arm to this. And, and um, although I think the French market is, is, can be generally a more challenging one, although I know there's been some big, uh, some big, uh, um, breakthroughs certainly in digital health in Germany and in France. Um, I think that uh, yeah, a very attractive market. I don't know which is bigger. I should know that, shouldn't I? Uh, whether UK UK is definitely not as big as Germany. I'm not sure how big it is versus France. I might think that it fits somewhere in between the two, but I can't answer that question. Um, okay. All are attractive ones. I think that um, you know the the infrastructure that we offer though within the UK market, particularly for those companies in the US that want to do research, is really attractive. And the language is almost the same. You guys have the NIH, the National mm -hmm. Institute of Health. We have the NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research. And the National Institute of Health Research is, a, is part of the NHS. It's funded, it gets about a billion pounds a year, which is quite a lot of money, to do research. And over the last 10 years, we've actually managed to get the NIHR to fund research on US companies' products using public funding. 
uh, which just shows the appetite for, for our country uh, to, to, to look at, uh, you know, to, to, to get and harness these great technologies that come from North America and help to get them into our healthcare system because we need them. I mean, right. you know, the, the technology that comes out of the US is by far, I think generally, there are a couple of exceptions I've found in the last 10 years, but most of the good stuff comes out of the US and you guys are inventing some amazing things that, that our healthcare system truly needs. I mean, we've got this, we touched on it earlier, Dwayne, that there's this waiting list we've got of technology need to address, you know, a colossal waiting list on the back of COVID patients that haven't been treated for the last four months or so. It is great. And I think that, you know, when, when you look at what we need um, right now, if I look at uh, productivity of getting through these patients now for our healthcare system, currently about 70% of treatments in our healthcare system are done, or 70% of admissions to hospital or, or, or episodes in hospital are done as day case. So 70%, which isn't bad. But what technologies exist out there where we can increase day case surgery, freeing up capacity in these hospitals to treat more patients more effectively and more with better productivity? That's what we're looking for. And when you think about the stuff that's come out of the US with minimally invasive surgery, robotics, you know, endovascular, endolaparoscopic, you know, all those great things that have come out of the US over the years that have helped to make these changes in our, in our provision of care to provide better, faster, less invasive treatments with good durability and better outcomes. And, and, and for the hospitals, we talked about, touched on it earlier, they need to be productive, they need to hit their waiting list, and they need to generate income. And that's what it's all about. So, you know, anybody out there listening that has something that can increase, uh, move it into what you call office-based office, uh, office treatments or a day case, or um, I think you call them outpatient treatments. We have a different language. Yeah, here. outpatient. Those sort of outpatient day case, office-based, that they're the things that are really, you know, the success stories of products that we've worked with over the last yeah. 10 years, like Neotrax, like, resin from uh from nextera you know uh you know so, so many my my history uh going back into my my um background as to how i got into what i'm doing today was on the back of um of running venus medical uk which was a vascular company based in san jose that invented uh radio frequency ablation for varicose veins and and that was a truly amazing uh, journey to be on i mean uh, what what we were uh, treating was uh, varicose veins, which which were treated with a te technique that was invented or or let's say introduced into our healthcare system in 1908, so over 100 years ago, and that was vein stripping, which was a painful uh, one-hour OR treatment with a couple of days of length of stay in hospital, where you would physically remove the vein using a wire. And and what I did with my team uh, is we introduced um, endovascular vein ablation. And, and what we did was we enabled hospitals to treat, you know, sometimes seven, eight, nine patients in a morning list in an ambulatory day case setting, um, um, as opposed to one or two in a morning list uh, with, with a length of stay. And, and that was a great journey to be on. And that's just an example of the, of the technologies that, that we've adopted now. And now vein stripping does not exist. It's all being done either by radio frequency or laser. And I think that, um, you know the next the next exciting area that we're we're very pleased to be involved in is is the growing area of uh, of, of endoscopic um, 
uh, treatments, you know, being able to use robots and other ways and mechanisms of de dealing with things like um, bowel cancer and, and transgastric surgery, you know, not having to go through the patient's abdominal wall and going transgastric. I mean, some of the things we're, we're working on are truly exciting. And, and, um, and, and it's the great thing is they've come along the right time now to, to deal with, with, with yeah. in all these countries, right, is, is about minimally invasive, safe, effective ambulatory treatments that, that free up capacity and help company, you know, help these, these hospitals, um, you know, run better businesses, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really a, a lot of the technology you see in maybe like the interventional radiology space yeah. is aimed at reducing time in the hospital, right? Yeah. If you, if you could, if you can, if you can take it down from, you know, three days to one day, that's yeah. a huge savings. It's a huge savings on the healthcare system. It's a yeah. huge saving for the patient. Um, and, and it reduces the, it reduces the risk for the patient as well. Um, so yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. It's, it's, it's good to see. And I'm glad they're, you know, that kind of technology is getting, um, uh, adopted in the UK as well. Um, how does, so, so, so re, like I, I kind of touched on it at the beginning, reimbursement is incredibly complicated in the US. Um, I've listened to presentations at uh, from from my old company, NAMSA, from the new company I work for, Covance. Um, both of the, the uh, reimbursement health economics uh, gurus, I call them, um, you know, I've seen their presentations and the US is complicated. Um, yeah. How does it work in the UK? I, hopefully it's easier. And I, I, I'm assuming it is. <laughs> well, I mean, here's, here's one thing. I, you know, I always sing the praises of the NHS because you, you've got, and Germany and other countries have multiple pairs, right? So, so the first thing is, how many pairs do you have? Well, we have one pair and that's NHS England. So we, we you know, sort of how it works is, I guess, and, and how I can always describe it in a, in a way, uh, in a US friendly way is that, um, to start off with, um, we we pay a lot of tax. So so if I go and fill my my car up with gasoline, um, we, we you know we'll we'll pay I don't know 100 and well it's gone down a bit recently because of the COVID thing, but you know we can typically pay 110 dollars or so for for a tank full of gas, which would horrify many people for what is a a standard sized automobile, right? So so a lot of that um, tax goes into the government, and the government we we have a publicly funded healthcare system, which you know, hasn't done a bad job with COVID. It's, 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 it's up there. You might have seen the Olympics. It was all this NHS thing, standing national health service. So we have this publicly funded healthcare system. So how does it work? How, how is it different? Well, we've got a single payer system. And I think that makes it attractive in the, for many companies, they're not having to deal with multiple insurance, Blue Cross Anthem, you know, all these payers. And I've been to US companies. I, I come over to the US that's a lot. And I sit down with people in these offices and they've got more people in reimbursement than they've got in engineering. Right. And their goal is to get 360 million lives covered with multiple coverage policies. It's not like that. So so when it comes down to reimbursement itself, you've got to think about the healthcare system in a slightly different way. Remember, I said that we have a publicly funded healthcare system. So um, people people ring me up a lot from the States and they say to me, Mike, um, I've got this really great treatment and the doctor will, will want to do it because he'll earn lots of money from doing it. It's like, stop, right? So what's the difference between a doctor that works in our healthcare 
system and a New York fireman. Actually, if I think about New York and firemen, you know, they don't carry business cards and it doesn't matter how many fires they put out, they still get the same salary, right? That's mm -hmm. the same as the UK doctors. They get paid a salary because they're employed by a publicly funded health system. They probably don't carry a business card and it doesn't matter whether they do three heart transplants a day or four or one, they get paid a salary. So the drivers and incentives are different. So that's one thing to mention about the differences with our single payer healthcare system and the way and drivers and incentives of activity are very different. When it comes down to how things are paid for, well, that's where it gets slightly different as well within different healthcare systems. So um, let's take Germany. Germany runs a, a, and, and Australia run um, a reimbursement around the medical device itself. So you get device related reimbursement. In our healthcare system, uh, the hospitals reimburse episodes of care. So, so they'll get a certain amount of money to treat a patient and included in that money, you have to pay for the device. Now, sometimes there are some exceptions to that with high cost devices like endovascular grafts, heart valves, etc., are funded in a slightly different way. But generally speaking, the mechanism of reimbursement is around what's known as DRG or HRG payment, which is a set fund for a treatment. And it's my job to help clients to be able to demonstrate out of that amount of money that's paid um, for that treatment by the government to the hospital, let's just say, um, is to try and maximize how they can get as much money for their medical device as possible whilst leaving enough money on the table to pay for the rest of the patient care episode, length of stay, etc. And I think that, um, you know, that's going back to, as I mentioned earlier, the principles of market access, demonstration of patient, provider, and payer benefits. If you do that before you come up with your price, then you've done it the right way. Unfortunately, many companies we work with, they ring us up and they say, well, we're selling this thing for $12,000 in the John Hopkins University in Los Angeles, or whether it exists, I'm sure it does. Um, and, and that's what the NHS is gonna pay for it. It's like, well, we run a slightly different healthcare system which I have personally experienced. I, I mentioned earlier, I come to the US a lot. I was over there four years ago and, and actually, um, you know, here's a really good example. I, I got a retinal detachment, probably because I was flying around a lot and I went from Colorado down to San Francisco and then up to Tahoe, which is quite a altitude, along sure. with several other flights. Got a retinal detachment, went to Stanford, got treated, and it was a $74,000 bill, right? So the cost of that episode in the UK is about six to seven thousand pounds, which is probably give it or take nine thousand dollars. So you've got really different ways of funding, and and I think that if you if you run on the basis of value, you know, demonstration, and you're able to show value uh, to the payer, the provider, and of course the patient with good outcomes, that's that's a science that we're in. That's called reimbursement and market access. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to your original question is how do you get things paid for? Well, the first thing we try and do is look at those four P's, patient, provider, payer, and product benefit, and then come up with a value proposition that works for our healthcare system. And they're the fundamental starting points. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when we can look at how the NHS funds activity, then we're able to work out how we can put that value proposition forward. So we help companies get patients get these technologies to patients faster.
So, so looking at that whole scenario, you're then led with, well, well, how do you really do that? And what would be the ideal situation if you really understood what was happening in the healthcare system in the first place? And that goes back to another great big benefit of our healthcare system is that it is a single healthcare system, a single payer system. And along with that, we have access to what you would call is claims data. And claims data is available in the US, but across multiple payers, it's, it's quite difficult to coordinate you know, the claims data and understand the national picture with having multiple payers in the US. In the UK, we, Device Access, has access to um, claims data across the whole of England. So when we come, when companies come to us and they say, well, we've got this great product, the first thing we'll start looking at is, is how does that patient, how is that patient treated today? You know, what is the population that needs that therapy? The first question is, who needs it? And we're able to look at things like diagnostic codes, which are the same across all countries under WHO rules, the World, World Health Organization um, database of what's known as international classification of disease codes and what we're able to do is understand how that diagnosis is you know what what it, what is the the volume of that diagnosis be it you know um, heart disease let's say um, you know what happens to patients with heart disease well we're able to look at the diagnosis of heart disease and all the different treatments so be it an endovascular endocardiac treatment you name it um, we, we, we're able to look at those episodes and then help companies to structure their value proposition. So one thing we have a device access is this license with the NHS to access this claims data so we can really truly understand how to put that value proposition forward. So how do you get things paid for? Demonstrate patient provider payer products, come up with a price that's justifiable, and then you use this body, which is like the JD power of our healthcare system called NICE, to validate those claims and then tell the healthcare system centrally and nationally how and why or, or, or really, you know, give, given the NHS direction as to, as to why they should be using that new technology. And that's the emphasis of what we do. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Um, so... Before we before we get into, I'd like I'd like to hear you know some some industry trends and where the market's going in the UK. But before we get there, um, so how has the the exit of you know the UK leaving the European Union has that has that really affected much of anything um, in, in terms of you know why a company would want to take a product to market in the UK? Has, has that really been affected? I'm sure it, it's been affected from a regulatory standpoint, but in terms of device access, it sounds like maybe not, but, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, I, I, it's a really good point. I'm an absolute, complete um, fan of Brexit. I think it's a great thing that we've done. And, and touching on what you were mentioning earlier is, is why I think that. I think the medical device, um, the whole MDR thing has been, a, it has been a total and utter disaster. I think, um, why has it taken them so long to work this thing out? Now, I'm very passionate about getting great technologies to patients faster. And I think what it's caused is, and not just for the UK, but for other European countries as well, um, is, is for these USA companies to think, I'm not sure if I really want to go through this process of the regulatory side of, of the CE marking now. And I think that uncertainty has been far more damaging than any concerns over Brexit. When 
you consider that I think most of the medical devices that we buy here in the UK come from North America, which is outside of Europe anyway, I believe. Um, so, so, you know, when it comes into um, bringing product to market, um, you know, we, we, we want to be an independent country making our own decisions on how we buy things and, and who we buy things from and who we let into our country. Um, and and I, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's a classic example. The, the MDR thing has been uh, confusing, has delayed decisions. Um, and that's not a good thing when, you, you know, we know the power of technology. I mean, you know, what's just happened in the world with COVID-19 is, is, is a wake up call for all countries to look at their health, health technologies. It's not being met by pharmaceuticals. Um, it's being met by medical devices. And I think that if you were a, um, if you were an army, navy or air force and you just had an attack on you like this and uh, you were a country, then what you do, you'd upgrade your, your, your defense forces, you'd upgrade your early warning systems. And I'm truly, truly believe that the healthcare systems across the world now are going to look at better mechanisms of diagnostics, which exist. And I'm, I've worked with some amazing companies in North America with some fantastic diagnostic technologies, and they're not the easiest thing to get into any healthcare system. And I think that, um, you know, technology now is much more needed. And I think that over-regulation, which is what the EU is all about, um, really, um, making up rules and, and, and all our lives, you know, if you, if you really look at history and you look at um, countries um, that have been hammered through war, let's take Japan and Germany, those two countries at the end of the Second World War were in a state. What did they do? Well, they built their economies back up using innovation and engineering and they weren't being regulated. And look where they are now. So I think that, you know, over-regulation, I think, yeah, regulation about safety of medical devices, absolutely. But over-regulation and delaying time to market is not what we need as in, in across the world now we need to be more free to invent more free to engineer things and get things to patients faster so that's the core of why i'm i'm a fan of brexit because i see a much stronger relationship between the uk and the us which which should be there plus our commonwealth countries that we've not been working so closely with australia you know fantastic healthcare system other countries out there new zealand other Commonwealth countries that, that in the past we're very close to. So I'm very optimistic. Uh, it's a bit of a long answer, but I think that, um, you know, trade is so important. We've seen it through what's been going on with COVID. Yep. Um, and and I, I'm very optimistic for, for our ability to be a standalone country and to be opening up and embracing, yeah. um, you know, technology and, and business into our country to, to bring... Right great things in and uh, not punish and, and uh, not punish them. Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the insight and, and, and the answer. And, you know, this, this isn't a political podcast. However, politics affect medical device development and regulations and, and getting technology to market. So, um, you know, we have to talk about um, some issues like that. It's just, it's, it's part of, it's part of the, it, it's going to creep into the industry. Um, yeah. To your point though, device and, and diagnostic, it's, it's, I think that and telehealth um, or digital health or, or whatever it might be um, are just on the cusp of, of really taking off and are probably in the midst of it because of COVID-19. Um, 
Yeah. And, you know, the other point you mentioned was, you know, I think, and, and you didn't say it exactly, but I think building off of that, COVID has, you know, pandemics like that have a way of taking issues that are maybe here you know, nice low that are just kind of boiling and elevating them. It, it, it almost, um, I don't know what the right phrase is, but um, it really unmasks underlying issues that just get swept underneath the rug. And eventually you sweep, you sweep too much of your issues underneath and say, oh, it's okay. It's not bugging me now. It's, it's, it's okay now. It becomes a huge problem. And we're starting to see a little bit of that. Um, and, you know, technology is... Uh, going to come roaring back. And, and you saw it with a lot of the, the COVID issues. I mean, how many diagnostic tests were, you know, um, pushed through in two or three months? I mean, um, amazing seeing that, you know, there's the companies like Abbott's and um, Biomerics and others that, that yeah. um, the stuff they were doing. I mean, I think it was a wake up call. Um, you know, we're, 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 we sort of talking about what you just said about brushing it to one side. We're, we're on the a highway to to in 20 about 2050 which isn't <laughs> it's 30 years time um but this whole antibiotic resistance right the dishing out of antibiotics in in volumes that go on in in all healthcare systems and and we knew there was going to get a point where antibiotic resistance is going to be there and the only way you'll stop that is to test properly and we go back to you know the core of market access is trying to get change in you know, healthcare systems with, you know, for us in, in medical devices and, and trying to incentivize the caregivers to do additional things to get the answer to prevent over prescription of things that don't work is, is a huge area. And I'm hoping on the back of this that, that we'll find that, that these um, healthcare systems will be buying better diagnostic systems because they're all out there. Yep. And, and they all work really well. And the home testing kit side that's, I mean, I know the US uh, color genomics and other companies that have invented, you know, I think more people are interested in their health. The people are wearing watches that tell them about their, you know, their health states are digital is it's, I think we're, I think that the, you know, there have been some casualties of, of COVID for the medtech industry. There really has um, some that have been funded in, in mysterious ways. Um, you know, but but I think that um, you know the future for medtech is really really exciting. Um, I, I truly think that uh, you, you know at the end of the day, it's been you know PPE, diagnostic tech, ventilators, CPAP machines, you name it, that have been keeping these people alive. And and I think that needs to be recognised, and we need to be we, we need to be in the same level of respects is the pharmaceutical companies are always up there you know, as soon as covid hit it was like oh we need a vaccine well that's going to take months what we're we going to do in between um so i think we're going into a really exciting phase i think all healthcare systems are changing you touched on digital health we're going to have more online consultations like we are now with with um with, with you and i um uh you know zoom is being rolled out across the uk healthcare system a great another american invention um so that consultations between family doctors and patients that's happening uh, so a lot of great things are coming out of it i think apple and google at the cutting edge, edge of track and tracing patients and and um yeah i, I think it's really exciting i think that this, this big data thing is 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 truly exciting being able to follow and track patients is is what's needed if we had a system 
that we we could diagnose people quickly and efficiently if we we're able to track them with this condition then we wouldn't have all run into trillions of debt trillions of dollars or pounds of debt um uh you know through through what we've just going through so i see huge um opportunity ahead for the industry yeah and and i had never i haven't talked about it on the podcast yet but but when you brought it up it you know it's it's something i've talked about with friends too and and family so so drug companies get i mean just you know notoriously get most of the attention um in in the media and and it's good and bad sometimes right i mean it, it's it's they come out with a cure they get the they get the attention right um and but you know they also get pushed back for how expensive their drugs are so that you know they've been in the media for good and bad and and device you really don't hear too much about it i mean johnson and johnson will get covered but they have a their you know they have their drug side of their company and they have their device as well but you know you really don't see medtronic or boston or zimmer or or Beckton Dickinson, you don't really see them in the news as much as as companies like Pfizer or Merck or GlaxoSmithKline, you know. But I, I I hope that they we we do start to see that because when you like you said when you look at what happened with COVID, just look at the evolution of the diagnostic test, yeah. and and you talked about it a little bit. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's still happening. Um, and, and the amount of medical device companies who went through the emergency use authorization pathway in the U.S., um, I know that's specific to us, but the amount of, of companies that just came to the aid of, you know, the American people, um, and I'm sure it happened worldwide, but, you know, I'm just speaking from what the news that I followed the closest um, was amazing. And, uh, but if you look at our national news, you still see everyone talking about, um, you know, the, 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 the vaccine or, or, um, you know, all these other, um, some of the drugs that could treat it, that could not treat it, but we know what did treat it. And that was the devices and the diagnostics. And that's what saved lives. So it's, it's good to talk about. I didn't mean... Unfortunately, this podcast isn't national news. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's I think, though, in, in all fairness, I think, and having been to, you know, I've been to lots of trade shows, um, Advermed and other meetings, Medical Alley, you know, over, in, over, over there. And, and I like the way that I, I get the feeling that in America that devices are celebrated more for the impact on patients' lives. I, I truly see, I think Advermed's angle on it is, is uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're inventing things that are improving lives, saving lives, and patients should be at the center of it. And I think, um, I, I, I do think that the that there's two aspects here. You have the pharmaceutical companies, they do the economics before they build the drug, right? That's quite the different sort of strategy. They, they'll work out whether it's a good business to sell the drug by doing really or to, to design engineer and manufacture and sell the drug um they they spend a great deal of money at that side of it whereas the medical device companies generally get bright ideas from clinicians um and they uh, they invent these things and and then they sort of work out how to price them afterwards 
and, and I think that we've got a lot to learn from the, the, the pharma industry because they do uh, inc an incredible job of, of the, the pre-launch stuff, um, pre-research that, that we don't generally do um, so, so much. So I, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, it, it should be, you know, the US has, has, done, has, has made some incredible advances in, in medical devices. And, you know, we love working with the US, uh, with the United States and, 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 and with these great technologies that come out of, of, uh, of your country. Yep. Um, good. Well, I, you, you know, let's, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, where the market is going. Uh, specifically in the UK, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about the um, the waiting list, but uh, where else? You know, we're 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 looking, I don't know, two three years in advance. Um, let's just assume, you know, I'm a I'm a startup medical device company in the U.S. or or in Japan or Australia, just not located in the UK. I'm I'm going to market in my my uh, local. Um, area you know where's the market going for the if i'm looking at the uk two to three years from now where's that going yeah i mean i think it's a, it's a really good point and and i i think that um I, i'd like to see I, I have some ideas here to talk about but i mean you know what what do we need um you know we need technologies that that enable patients to um you know, manage their own care better, whether that's being, you know, using digital uh, means of working out where, where they need and why they need treatment. Obviously, fantastic advances in the country in, for example, diabetes, right? So, uh, you know, the monitoring, glucose monitoring systems here are all being upgraded, which is great to see. So, you know, early detection, um, increasing self-management, you know, these things keep people away from the secondary care environment. So, you know, that's all going to happen. I think, um, you know, anything that, that uh, you know, enables patients to um, deal with that and not be, uh, you know, not, not be um, a burden on, on secondary care is, is definitely what I, I think is, is going to happen. Um, in our healthcare system, there's definitely people, you know, uh, you, you know, but, but I think it just goes back to, um, again, the four principles, patient, provider, payer and product benefit. I think that, um, you know, th th there's, there's great opportunities ahead of, of increasing day case surgery, um, of, of maybe bringing care closer to patients' homes so they can get treated in um, you know, without having to go to a big hospital and a small hospital type of thing or, or by their GP. I mean, these things are going to be looked at more seriously. Decision-making in the healthcare system has been accelerated to no end since COVID. So, you know, the, the old mechanisms of uh, decisions being made, uh, you know, with people physically in a room in a meeting are, are moving into Teams and Zoom meetings. So, you know, the acceleration of decision-making, um, Where's it going? I think it's going in a, in a, in a direction whereby there's going to have to be uh, an improvement in the way that the industry engages with healthcare systems globally. You know, if we're not able to engage as much as we have been physically with payers, providers, um, then, then the, the communication of benefit is something that the industry is going to have to sharpen up on, certainly in the UK, is to how do we get the point across if we're not seeing, physically seeing uh, doctors 
and decision makers and we're having to send things to them by email or by you know presentation coming up with saying that ours is cheaper and better is just not strong enough and so that the whole value proposition story has to be uh, improved and i think that if that does happen if if companies do engage at a higher level and what we would say is engage in the carpeted areas of a hospital then change will be made faster but to do that you really need to get under the skin of the the provider and the payer and we're in a great um, position here in our healthcare system because we have access to that information that helps us to understand what the payer is paying for and how the provider is treating that population so um, where's it going more digital more care away from hospital um, you know remote monitoring that's got to happen you know anything that that keeps people out of hospital or avoids an admission so that's all about diagnostics so i think that the, the the in our healthcare system a few months ago all the debt was written off we've got record investment going into our healthcare system we're opening up our borders to people from other countries we're not being so restrictive in terms of just European, we can, you know, we want some of the top people and scientists in our healthcare system and in our industry here. So I'm excited for, for the future. And I think if we get some, if we put our UK healthcare system on a map as a country that, that's hungry for innovation and hungry for, for US technology, I think it will help both of our countries to, to, to grow and, and recover from this, um, this pandemic. And I think that, um, you know, we have a great uh, relationship, US and UK, uh, forged over many years now. Um, and, and I'd like to think of us as being, you know, a closer working relationship between both countries with science and technology. We're very hungry for it. Yep. Mike, I like it. I like the positivity. It's something we all need in uh, times like this, too. Um, one thing before, before, we, before we wrap it up here, um, I'm curious, and I just thought about it. Um, as you were talking, and it's kind of backtracking to previous a previous topic we were talking about. But how does the how does the UK look at it from a reimbursement side? What's what's the equivalent in the US to a five ten k? Right, I call them Me Too devices, um, devices that say they're substantially equivalent. Um, how does that work in the UK with Nice? Um, so, so if I'm, if there's, you know, uh, um, I don't know, a, a knee replacement, um, device or hip replacement device in the UK. And I say, Hey, I have one that's substantially equivalent. I want to bring it to market there as well. Um, how does that, how does that work? Do they promote both? Um, or do they pick one? Yeah, sure. So, so you're touching on um, almost on device related reimbursement, which we don't have. So if you have a, a hip replacement um, joint that uh, is CE marked. So again, we, we do have CE marking. We're going to continue with yeah. CE marking as for, as into the foreseeable. Okay. So from a regulatory perspective, if you have a CE marked medical device, you can sell it into the UK healthcare system, right? Mm. Because we don't, we don't, um, have device-related reimbursement in most of the cases, unless they're high-cost devices. So here's the opportunity. So if you've got a, a Me Too hip replacement uh, product that's the same and it's CE marked, you can sell it in the healthcare system. If you want to differentiate it, if you want some, if if it has some differences in performance and outcomes that are better than the compar 
comparator, then there is a program in NICE which will compare your product against the others and would promote yours over the others if it was better, um, cost neutral, cost saving, um, but had some other benefits that was innovative. Again, a lot of the NICE programs, it's a bit like when you think about the JD Power magazine, they're not going to review a you know a Ford from 25 years ago. They're going to look at the new Ford electric cars, right? It's nice. the same. They'll look at the new things. The old things exist, and they're just covered anyway. Okay. So, and those sort of technologies um, are the ones that we don't tend to get involved in because they're me too. We're looking for transformative, innovative things that are going to make a difference. So, so the answer to the question is um, very easily. You can get those things paid for. Um, again, price negotiation would be based on benchmarking you against competition. Yeah. Got um, if you've got something that is totally, you know, is, it fits in the same space, but reduces length of stay by three days and improves recovery and lasts twice as long. For example, you know, when we compare some of the work that NICE have done recently on, on battery life of implantable um, pacemakers, right? Sure. So, you know, pacemakers, lots of different ones out there. There was one by Boston Scientific that had a very good battery life, stronger and better than the others. Nice gave it a recommendation. So they recommended Boston's pacemaker um, because of its um, its extended life. But the all the all the other ones can still be bought and used. Mm-hmm. But the choice, um, you know, the, the the recommended choice is Boston's. And from a hospital perspective, from a provider perspective. The providers have a contract with the payers and in that contract, the provider should abide and have regard to NICE guidance. And that means that um, they should be using what NICE have recommended in terms of procedure or product. If the hospital um, doesn't and a patient has the alternative, they could sue the hospital and say, well, NICE had recommended for example, in Duralife, I had this product. It only lasted three years. I've come back in and had a complicated procedure. Um, why didn't you give me this better product in the first place? Right. So, and that can cost litigation. So, the hospitals contractually and from a reputational perspective should be using what Nice recommends. And we've recently done some podcasts on this and on YouTube as well. There's a video that Device Access have done on on engaging with Nice and Nice recommendations. And we actually brought in a hospital decision maker, a general manager that explains it perfectly as to why he would, he de-risks his um, position by using products that are recommended by NICE. So it's slightly complicated, um, uh, you know, compared to your, your, your system, but, but I'd like you to think of NICE as the organization like the JD Power that, that gives the, that gives the thumbs up to what's best. And, and those buying decisions are, are looked at very carefully by the providers and by the payers. Yeah, thank you. That's good. That's a good, good analogy for us. Um, well, great. Um, Mike, I appreciate your time today. Um, you know, within the show notes, I, I always include a link to uh, both of our LinkedIn bios, um, the website for Device Access UK, um, and, and, you know, as always, I, I have my, my email out there as well that uh, if people want to get in touch with you and, um, you know, they can email me and I could put them in touch. So however we want to do it, but, but all that's in the show notes. So, um, look, I appreciate your time today. It was very uh, informative, uh, very helpful. 
And, um, you know, if you're a company looking to access the UK market, look no further than uh, Mike at Device Access because he's, he's super knowledgeable. So I appreciate your time today. Really appreciate it, Dwayne. Thanks. And wishing you continued success with your uh, podcast and um, what you're doing. It's been uh, really great um, being on this and also watching the other podcasts and, and, and you know, the network of the, the great thing with the industry is it's so small, really. Um, you know, people know people and, and it is a fantastic industry that we're in. And, and it's great to to see who you're interviewing recently. And, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, we all learn this always stuff to learn, isn't there, in this world of medtech. So absolutely delighted to be involved. And, and thank you so much. I'm very appreciative for you uh, for interviewing me on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions or comments for myself or Mike, there's a link to our LinkedIn pages in the show notes. If you'd like to get in contact with Mike, feel free to reach out to the podcast and I could put you in touch with Mike. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review and feel free to visit the webpage www.projectmedtech.com or send the podcast an email at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. Have a great day.